But turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, and I want us to read from John 3, verses 1 through 8. It will be on the screen, and if you would stand in honor of the word of the Lord, we believe that the Bible is God's authority and His holy word. It's God's will for our life, and we honor the word of the Lord as, as we stand and read that. And so if you have your Bibles... You can read from there. If not, then again, it's on the screen, and you can follow along from John chapter 3. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version, beginning at verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, or teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, And the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, who has given to us such a gift as your word, that we do not have to stumble through the dark and in confusion, but we can open this book, we can hear your words, and by your Holy Spirit, we who have have entered into a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, you you give us understanding of your purpose and your will through this book. Let the words... Reach our hearts, and may these words today from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ be words that permeate the heart of anyone who is here who has not had and entered into that relationship with Jesus. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, I pray today, be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I want to back up a little bit in John 2 because this is a very familiar account that many of us who have been in the church have heard and and have studied. Last week, we talked about the love of God and used John 3.16 as one of the preeminent master verses talking about the love of God. And Today, we're going to put that in a little bit more context, but zero in on the theme of this dialogue between Jesus and this individual by the name of Nicodemus, and talking about one of this first statement when Jesus says, you must be born again. If any of you were, remember back when, uh, I believe it was in 1976, when Jimmy Carter was running for president, and he made public that he was a born-again Christian. That was a term that we in the church understood where that came from, but in the culture, it just kind of ignited a fire, the term born again. 
And I remember seeing on magazines and covers and everybody stickers and born again. And Charles Colson, if you remember that name, his biography, uh, he was one of Nixon's uh, men that was involved in Watergate. And his biography was entitled Born Again. Sometimes it's used in culture in a derogatory sense, those born againers. Are you part of that born againers? Well, Jesus is the one that initiated that term. Not Jimmy Carter, not Charles Colson when he said to Nicodemus that you must be born again. And he's saying that as well as to us. But this encounter, if you you have your Bibles open, goes back just slightly above into chapter 2 towards the end. The Bible reads in verse 23 of chapter 2, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He knew the hearts, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, chapter headings and verses were added around the, uh, probably around the 16th, 17th century in the publishing of the Bible. Paul did not write in with little numbers by his, by his sentences. That was put in there as a device to help us understand and read. You get the idea. The reason I point that out is because when we go from 2 to chapter 3, it's really continuing that thought because as it ends in chapter 2, for he himself knew what was in man, now there was a man. He knows what's in the heart of Nicodemus. You with me? So Jesus is perceptive, and that thought needs to carry through when we come into this encounter and this dialogue with Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? Well, it tells us that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was part of that strict Jewish religious group that really was a minority among the religious groups in Israel. There were four, as you know. You had Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, and you also had the Essenes. They were kind of separatists and kind of stayed out in the desert and studied the scriptures. But the Pharisees was a very strict religious order, and they tried to follow the 600-plus Old Testament laws as well as the thousands of codified laws in what is known as the Talmud, which is the oral traditional teaching of the Jewish rabbis handed down through the centuries. So they were very committed to a strict understanding. And Nicodemus, don't miss this, he was a faithful religious practitioner. He was not some phony hypocrite. He was someone who desired to be faithful to the understanding and obedience to the word of the Lord as he understood it. The Bible says in verse 1, he was also a ruler of the Jews. That also lets us know that he was a part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin operated as the supreme court over Israel. It was mostly composed of the Sadducees, the other religious group. They tended to give of themselves to more of the political, secular matters. And so to have a Pharisee high up on that Sanhedrin level was unique. So Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a part of that ruling class. He was a mover and shaker of Jewish society. Did we bump the air, make it a little, because I see people starting to wrap up in parkas. So if you check that, I feel in the coolness, and it gets a little colder when everybody's sitting down. Don't turn the heat on, but uh, otherwise I'll, I'll inflame up here. But 
He was also, the Bible says, he was a teacher of the law, verse 10. That means he was a scholar. He was a biblical scholar. Uh, And the reason that's important for us to lay it out is the fact that even with all of his background, all of his knowledge, his attainment, all of that, there was something that was missing in his life. There was something that was missing, and he came to Jesus with all of that, with all of that background. He was a great man, committed to the disciplines of the word of the Lord, and he came to Jesus. And the Bible says that he came to Jesus at when? When did he come to Jesus? He came at night. Now, I always kind of speculate he came at night because he didn't necessarily want to be seen. But I'm not sure if that's always the case. It could be, as you go back and review chapter 2 sometime, there was great crowds following Jesus. You can go to Walmart on Saturday afternoon at 2 o'clock and the entire Polk County is there, right? But if you went at 9 or 10 o'clock, or I know even some people like to do their shopping in the middle of the night, you know, because of their schedule... Hardly anybody's there. Maybe he went at night because he wanted to talk to Jesus, and that simply was the only time that he could get access to him. So we don't want to be too hard on Nicodemus. It could be either way. But Jesus gives this statement as he begins this dialogue. Jesus knew, verse 25 of chapter 2, what was in man. Now there was a man, and he knew very well what was in this man, Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. He acknowledged Jesus, rabbi, very polite. He said, we know that you must be a teacher sent from God because no one could do the signs and the miracles that you do unless they are sent by God. What signs and miracles? Well, we just saw that at the end of chapter 2, that many came to believe in his name because of the signs that he did. But notice kind of a freebie, notice that Jesus wasn't overly impressed because they committed their life to him just because they saw the signs. Remember, he knows what was in man. He knows what is in human beings. He knows the heart. So Nicodemus comes and and acknowledges that. And before Nicodemus could even begin asking him or inquiring him, maybe he was sent by the Sanhedrin, go check this guy out. Go see whether it's somebody we need to be worried about, concerned about. Nicodemus had all the credentials. He went there. And before he could ask anything, Jesus, why? Because Jesus knew what was in man. He knew what was in his heart. Jesus, right out of the gate, says in verse 3, he doesn't say, oh, you're such a nice man, rabbi, coming from you. That is such a compliment. Boy, uh, I'm honored that a man of your stature and letters would be so complimentary to me, just a carpenter, you know, from from Nazareth. I mean, he didn't say any of that. Jesus, right out of the box, said this statement in John 3, 3, truly, truly, and in the uh, literal, it is amen, amen. We say amen or amen at the end of our prayer. The double is We could say it this way, this is truth, truth. Anytime you see a word repeated in Scripture, you hear me quote Isaiah 6 a lot. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and those angels were singing, holy, holy, holy. You don't see love, love, love. Mercy, mercy, mercy. So when Jesus says, 
Truly, truly. Truth, truth. Amen, amen. It means underline, bold type, take it to the bank. This is truth of very truth. When he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he or she, they cannot see the kingdom of God. And so in this dialogue, I want us to answer three questions here about this confounding statement. What does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be born again? Well, first let's describe or let's understand what it is. What it is. What is being born again? It refers to the new birth, the new birth as believers, being regenerated. When you have a something that like a dead battery that was generating at one time and it went dead, it needs to be what? Regenerated. It needs it had life source, but it needs an outside life force to electrify it and recharge it to regenerate it. The Bible teaches that we are born in sin. The Bible teaches us that spiritually we were born dead spiritually. We do not have anything spiritually inherent in us to respond to God, spiritually speaking. Therefore, we need to, as Jesus says, be regenerate. We need a new birth. We need to be born again. And so Jesus says, Nicodemus, uh, because he knew what was in his heart, perhaps he knew where he was going with this, and perhaps even shattered his confidence Because I would imagine that if there was anybody that was confident in their stuff, it was this guy. Don't miss this. I won't talk a lot about it. But Nicodemus is also a picture of Israel. The pride, the astute learning, the commitment. And yet, there is still something deficient that they needed. Just like our lives. We can attain a lot of things. We may understand the Bible front and back, but we need a new birth. We need life given to us in Christ. We talk about regeneration. We talk about, look at, well, let me just keep on track here with their scriptures. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time in his mother's womb? He's thinking of it in a very, what, natural way, a natural understanding And Jesus says in verse 5 and 6, Truly, truly, there it is again, I say to you, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter in the kingdom of God. That's not talking about baptism. That's not talking about baptism. Church of Christ people want to use that, talk about baptism. That has nothing to do with baptism. Nicodemus wouldn't have any concept of baptism. It doesn't have anything to do with it. Verse 6, That which is born of the flesh, pay attention to this, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born... Of the spirit is spirit. When Jesus said about talking about flesh, that's referring to our nature. We have a nature that is not responsive to God. We are our nature, our flesh refers to ordinary humanity. Our flesh refers to our first physical birth, which is only flesh. God is spirit. We connect to God as a as spirit. The natural human condition as we experience it, is spiritually lifeless. That's why we need a new birth. 
We need regeneration. We are not born spiritually alive with a heart that is inclined to love God. We are born spiritually dead. Give you some quick examples just to round this out. Jesus implied when he met a would-be disciple who wanted to go home to a funeral, Jesus said, remember, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, he wasn't being harsh or cruel. He was just saying, you want to come into spiritual matters, but you're still consumed with dead matters. You're still consumed with the things of the flesh, the things that are not spiritual. You remember when Jesus encountered what the, uh, the prodigal son, or told the parable of the prodigal son. The father said, upon his son coming home, he said, this is my son who was dead and is alive again. You get the point. So Jesus sees all of humanity in two primary groups. Those who are merely born once, born of the flesh, the spiritually dead, and those who are born again by the Spirit of God, those who are alive to God and see the kingdom of God, whose affections and hearts have been changed. Jesus would say here in this passage, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. What do we mean by the kingdom of God? That means the rule or presence of God, what God is doing, what, the, what, what, what is happening beyond what we see. Jesus says you cannot see that. You can't see that spiritually or understand. The Bible says in I believe it's in 2 Corinthians 2, 1 Corinthians 2.14. Remember, it says the natural man, meaning the dead human, spiritually dead, without the spiritual apparatus, cannot see or cannot understand spiritual things because they are spiritually discerned. You do, your apparatus to pick up the frequency is dead. You can't receive it because you need the spiritual uh, receiving to pick up the transmitter of what God is doing. So that is the, the picture of humankind. We need a new birth. And so the first thing we learn about the new birth is that it is, it is the means by which God's Spirit makes us alive to His loving presence, to His Lordship, to His leadership. I want to read to you a uh, couple of statements here. This is a little bit more than three points on a poem this morning. Because I believe that just to gloss over this would not do justice to what God wants us to make sure that we understand as a church. And so, again, we're not going to belabor it for four hours, but just I have some things in here that I kind of wrestled with, but I think they will help us understand more than just the superficial understanding of this passage, but understand of what, why this is so essential as Christians, that we grasp what I believe Jesus is teaching here and giving to us in this narrative. John Murray, who is an eminent uh, theologian who is in heaven now, listen to what, how he explains regeneration. Regeneration, it's important, regeneration is the beginning of all saving grace in us. And all saving grace in exercise on our part proceeds from the fountain of regeneration. In other words, any spirituality that we have begins with regeneration, okay? We are not born again by faith or repentance or conversion. We repent and believe because we have been regenerated. You with me? 
you can't even see that your sin or my sin, I'll just put it on me, I can't see that as a sinner that my life, that the Bible says that I'm an enemy of God, that my sin is an offense to a holy God. I can't even understand that unless God begins the process of drawing me to Himself and that begins at regeneration because I'm dead in sin. One last statement. Kenneth Wiest, who... And again, sometimes I mention these names not just because... Oh, look at me, I I read books, big deal. I I mention these names because if you're serious about growing your faith, you might pick up on a name and say, okay, I want to, that's what I do. When I hear somebody read something or quote something, I write it down because I want to go and check that out. I like what they said and I want to know that because there's a lot of nonsense out there, okay? There's a lot of nonsense. And if you go to your average Christian bookstore looking for something of substance, and your and your your depth is every day is a Friday Bible studies. Then, my friend, you need to move forward. You need to grow a little more. Okay, all right. Kenneth Weiss says this, talking about regeneration. This is this is really essential, and I think it's nothing foreign to Grace Church because one of the things in our in our language of grace we understand are being taught through the years about transformation. Listen to what he says, and it'll help us, and we'll move on. The teaching here, referring to this passage in John 3, the teaching of what Jesus is saying here is that humankind, in their depraved or sinful condition, cannot be improved. Reformation will not change them into a fit subject for the kingdom of God. The flesh, our nature, is incurably wicked and cannot by any process be changed so as to produce a religious life. What that person needs, Jesus says, is a new nature, a spiritual nature which will produce a life pleasing to God and which will be a life fit for the kingdom of God. We need an intervention as a spiritual intervention that is nothing less than a new birth. We need to be born again. We don't need reformation. We need transformation. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And without the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform our lives from darkness to light, my friends, we are without hope. There's no antidote. There's no, there's no uh, cure apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, in this same thought of what is the new birth, the new birth is a spiritual event. Sometimes you might hear it as a mystery, but we hear mystery, we kind of, ooh, you know, murder she wrote, or, you know, it's a mystery novel. It just means that it's beyond our ability to kind of logically process and cross every T, dot every I, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a mystery, there's an unknownness to it. But it produces an undeniable reality when we are experiences, experience this transformation. It can't be explained by just a rational sense knowledge, sometimes we'll say. Look with me at verse 9 of chapter 3. Nicodemus said to him, how... Can these things be? The guy is amazed. He's, he, he's just, he's like, he, his mind is blown. 
hey, man, I just want to come out and have some tea with you. And I mean, and immediately, Jesus is just, why? Because he knows what's in his heart. He may have been out on a mission from the guys, the Sanhedrin, but I suspect as we, if you timeline Nicodemus' life out, he drew closer and closer and I believe became a convert to Jesus Christ eventually. At least that's what Scripture suggests later on down the road. But he says, how can these things be? Remember, his entire life and understanding of how one is made right before God is essentially performance-based relationship with God. I do this, God blesses me. I perform, I, I, I attain and accomplish all this. The Apostle Paul, remember what he would say? He would say, look, I count it all as a bunch of garbage as compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Paul would have had the equivalent of close to somebody like a Nicodemus, you know, had two or three PhDs by our, by our degree understanding. He was a brilliant man. He was meticulous in his obedience to the law, and I'm sure Nicodemus was the same way. But Jesus also refers, and I, when he said, how can these things be, verse 9, and look at Jesus' answer. Certainly not necessarily complimentary, but look at what Jesus says in verse 2. He says, are you a teacher of Israel? And he is. He's a Pharisee. He says, you mean you're a teacher of Israel? Meaning you're one of the elite scholars of Israel and you do not understand these things? And he took him back to an Old Testament passage in Ezekiel 36. Put that on the screen for me real quick. And this is from, and just, I'm just going to read this, but what I'm making the connection is, is that Nicodemus should have understood the process by which God had promised to bring about a new heart, that God had promised to bring His Spirit and put it within humankind. And this is an Old Testament passage that most scholars believe that Jesus is referring to back in Ezekiel 36, verse 25 through 27. And we're just going to read it. This is the promise in Ezekiel. I will sprinkle, looking future, I will sprinkle clean water on you, the Lord says, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Next verse. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a godly heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my laws or my statutes. So what he's saying is that, Nicodemus, what I'm telling you about the new birth, about this impartation that God has promised shouldn't be a shock to you. In fact, it's consistent with the Old Testament and what God has promised concerning the new covenant. So, so we see that what is this new birth? It's regeneration. It's a transformation of God's Spirit. It's not being reformed. You've heard me use this analogy several times that unless you are transformed, born again by the Spirit, here, here's maybe a picture I use a lot. Imagine you never take a bath. And if you have children somewhere between 9 and 12, you can imagine that quite a bit. Unless you I have boys, so I understood that. In fact, I remember one time, Jonathan, he's not here so I can pick on him, said, went in, took his bath, and he came out, and I learned to ask the question, did you use soap? 
This is the response. He thought just sitting in a hot water was sufficient or under the shower, but I always had to make sure I added that information in there. Back to our picture. Imagine never taking a bath, but you just put on new clothes every day. That's what a person who is trying to reform themselves, that's the picture. Sooner or later, that which is on the inside is going to what? Stinketh, as the King James says. So that's what it is. How do we get it, secondly? Two ways we don't get it. There's two ways we don't get it. We don't get it by good works or religious discipline because if that was the way, Nicodemus would have, he would have had it. It's not even by tipping the hat and believing that Jesus was a good teacher sent by God. Nicodemus acknowledged him in that, didn't he? There may be some of you that you equate being a Christian with just uh, acceptance of certain theological information. Well, certainly I believe in God. Certainly I believe in Jesus. You know, I believe, yeah, I believe. It's all here. 18 inches between here and the heart. There's been no connectiveness in a change of life. So we don't get it by just right information. We don't get it by just being religious and being astute in religiosity and being faithful in that. How do we get it? Look at verse 14 and 15. And this is a very strange reference. And if you go to sleep and wake up when I'm explaining it, you're probably going to be scared, okay? So just stay, stay with me. Jesus said, verse 14... He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. What is he talking about? I have the scripture up there, Numbers 21. Go ahead and put that up there. This is referring back to an Old Testament event where the, where the Israelites were in rebellion, and we'll pick it up in verse 4 of Numbers 21. This is what Jesus is referring to, all right? From Mount... ...they set out, talking about the Israelites, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. I'm glad I've never pastored any church where nobody, everybody was not impatient. And the people spoke against God and against who? Moses. And what did they say? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. I mean, they're just sick of it. And then the Lord sent. Say, the Lord sent. Let that percolate in your theology a little bit. The Lord sent what? Fiery snakes or serpents among the people. It was judgment. And what did they do? They bit the people so that many people of Israel and the people came to Moses. Kind of change of heart. What did they say? They said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for all the people. And the Lord said to Moses, this is where it's a little... Strange, if you're just waking up, you're not in a snake-handling church, so just hang on. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent 
and set it on a pole. The New American Standard says standard, but it's a pole. And everyone who is bitten and he sees it shall live. Next verse. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at that bronze serpent and live. All right, now, what in the world are they talking about? All right? Is that from the Book of Mormon or Nephi? I mean, where in the world is that? I didn't even know that was in the Bible. Well, Jesus did because that's what he's quoting. That's what he's referring to. And here's the deal. The passage in Numbers, again, we're in John 3. We're explaining the new birth, and Jesus is going to make a profound point. So hang on. Jesus referring to that Old Testament event. Remember the Bible says that the events in the Old Testament were written for us as New Covenant believers. They were, there's what are called analogies or types, T-Y-P-E-S. In other words, there are events that happen in real space and time But yet, in God's timeline future, they had a future significance and a fulfillment in reference. And this is a direct connection because Jesus directly refers to this event in Israel in Numbers 21. Here's the example. The serpent represented sin. It represented that which was poisonous. Sin has bitten us. There's no remedy. There's no antidote. Moses, you're going to put that that emblem, that serpent on a pole and lift it up. And everyone who looks to that, you mean looking at a serpent? Jesus, the Bible says Jesus was made sin for us. And Jesus says in this lifting up, just as they looked and looked at God's remedy in this serpent, they were healed of the poison venom of those serpents that were judgment. So Jesus fast forwards and says, just like that, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And those who look at the Son of Man being the sin bearer, is the only remedy of the venom and the poison that will kill us and send us to hell. And that unless the Son of Man be lifted up, there's no life. Look unto Jesus. Look unto Jesus and be saved. Nicodemus, if I be lifted up from all the earth, he would say, I will draw all peoples to myself. Jesus must be lifted up. And there's multiple scriptures where he says over in John 12, 32, that scripture I quoted, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 was the passage where he was made sin for us. He was the serpent, quote unquote. Now don't go out and say I said Jesus was a snake. He was the, he was the sin bearer. You with me? Everybody with me? He was the sin bearer. And that as we look up to the one who bore our sin, there's life in Jesus and Jesus alone. What is the new birth? It's transformation. It's regeneration. How do we get it? We get it by being born again, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And it's in that context, and we won't look at it. We looked at it last week. In verse 16, when Jesus said, For God so loved the world, that He sent Jesus to be the sin upon the pole, upon the cross. 
and whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There is no, there is no antidote, people, except Jesus. There's no hope except Christ and Christ alone. So why do people reject it? Why do people reject it? Jesus makes it clear in verses 19 through 21. We didn't read this earlier, but let me read it. Jesus said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. If you go back over to chapter 1, John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, has not resisted it. He goes on to say that John the Baptist, he wasn't the light. He was only a witness to the light, that Jesus was the light. Why do people reject the gospel? Because the Bible says, Jesus says, they love darkness and they hate the light. And let me remind you, the Bible says in Romans 3.11 that there are none who seek after God. We sometimes will say, well, you know, everybody's seeking God. Well, let's clarify, they're not seeking God. They're seeking all the stuff God might want. You know, they, they want peace. They want relief from guilt. They want happiness. They want joy. They want all the benefits. But let's not say they're seeking the God of all the universe. Because, again, in of themselves, we cannot seek. That's why we need Jesus to seek us out. You want to be seeker-friendly? Turn the tables. It's Jesus who sought you. It's Jesus who came after you. It's Jesus who rescued you when you were dead in sin and trespasses. Sometimes we use the, you know, the analogy of just we just need to throw the gospel lifeline. We're flailing around in the ocean. My friend, you are dead on the bottom of the ocean. Jesus plunged into the depth of your sin and rescued you and hauled you back to shore and gave you mouth to mouth resuscitation. Otherwise, you would have rotted dead in your sin and gone straight to hell without Christ. People love the darkness. Jesus is the light seeking us out. But what happens when you go into a dark place, maybe that shed, and you flip on the light, and all of a sudden you see all the critters cockroaches scurrying. What happens? Why do some people, why are some of you right now, you're uncomfortable when you come into this kind of setting? Well, that could be a lot of reasons, but in many cases, some cases, often the case, is because when the Holy Spirit begins to use the worship and the Word to push back on your rebellion... It makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? We don't like it. We're not naturally inclined to it. Even as believers, we, we just, you know, we, we don't like being pushed back on our sense of what we should and shouldn't be doing. Don't mistake, and this is where sometimes people, and I, and I realize there's legitimacy sometimes, but people might say, oh, the preaching or the teaching is just too hard. And sometimes that's the case. But what you might be mistaking is the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that's trying to woo you, try to draw you. Jesus said in John 6, no man can come to the Father unless my Father draws them. 
be careful. It doesn't matter really in the big scheme whether you like me or the church. Don't reject the Holy Spirit who even in your sin is drawing you to himself. That often, and well, not often, that is the process of how God begins to work in the power of regeneration. Because unless there is light, you cannot see your condition and, accept, and, and express and have faith. Faith is a gift from God. It's a gift from God because you ain't got none. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace we have been saved, and that is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, lest anyone should brag or think that, hey, this is something I did. We are not born a little good and a lot bad. We're not born with just a little flicker. We're dead. The picture of the Scriptures uses dead. Is there mystery? Is there tension between when does that regeneration in my faith? And we want to kind of, I don't know. I don't know. All I do know is that if Jesus hadn't turned on the light, I wouldn't be here. That's all I know. Like the blind man. Look, guys, I don't know. All I do know is what? I was blind, and now I see. That's about as deep theology as you need. All I know is I was lost, and now I'm found. Let me give you this last one, because I want to make sure you get your money's worth. You say, well, how do I know I'm regenerated? How do I know I'm born again? Well, ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit that bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of God. You don't get that in an altar call. You don't get it filling out a card, shaking the preacher's hand, getting baptized. Those may be all as a concept or as a fruit of a born again, a new birth, right? We walk in obedience because I quoted you uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Verse 10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works. Okay? What are some signs of life? Jesus is using the analogy of a new birth. And so if we just take that analogy of a newborn child, let me give you these four very quick. I won't elaborate on them, and we'll close. Thinking of a newborn child, the first thing a newborn baby does is cries. First thing a regenerate person does is cries out to God for help. They cry out to God. The newborn Christian cries out to God. He prays, she prays, knowing their complete dependence upon the Lord. That baby is totally dependent upon you. A regenerate, born-again individual knows that I am, I am totally dependent upon him. Secondly, just as the baby feeds, so the new believer, the one who is born again, has a hunger for the milk of God's word, 1 Peter 2.2. 2. If you have no interest, if today is the only time you ever even saw a scripture all week, ding, 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 pay attention. If you have no hunger or desire, does that mean you have to understand the depths of things? No. But if you have no desire to read anything, to, to encounter God in any way with His Word, something might be wrong. If you have, the Bible cannot, does, does not know a believer that, that does not have a desire to know God and grow in experiencing God. And one of the ways that God has designed that is He has given us Scripture. And if there's no hunger or desire, 
there. That should cause us some concern. Thirdly, the baby sleeps. Sometimes maybe not as much as we want at certain times. But connecting this to a regenerate person, there's beautiful peace in sleeping. A regenerate, born-again person knows the peace of God. Does that mean there's no suffering? No, read your Bible. Read your Bible. There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of suffering. And, and, and often it comes not because you did something. It because, it's because we live in an evil, fallen world. Suffering is part of walking the dirt of this earth. There will be suffering. Jesus said there will be trials. There will be tribulations. James 1 says when, it, when you enter into trials and tribulations, what do you do? That's part of the Christian experience. But even in the midst of suffering and hardship, even in the midst of Elder Don Quarter facing the depths of cancer, yet there was a peace of the Holy Spirit because he knew he, who he belonged to. Yes, he did not want to die. He didn't want to leave Sandy. He didn't want to leave this earth and his grand. He didn't want that. But he knew God. He made that decision a long time ago, not when he just got when he got diagnosed. So the baby, the newborn, the new birth, we enjoy the peace of God. Paul, look at his life, spent a, a lot of time in prison. And yet he wrote things, crazy stuff like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Philippians 1, he says, I even know that my being in jail advances the gospel. So, hey, he says, I'm all right with that. Do you see your suffering redemptively for the glory of God? There is peace with a regenerate, born-again believer. And last, the baby grows. As Christians, if there's no growth, if there's no growth, if after 20 years, 10 years, you're still talking about the same thing you did 20 years ago spiritually, you're reading the same and talking about the same stuff and you're not entering into, well, probably we'll see in heaven. But that is not what God wants for your life. That's not what He birthed you for. That was not His purpose. I can't motivate you. It has to come by the Spirit of God drawing you and saying, I want to spend more time with you in prayer and opening my word and giving of yourself in service and using the gifts that I made for, gave you to use them as a blessing to the body. We heard Lori, where she, she scooted out, testify about taking care of that young child, using her spiritual gifts, her compassion to reach the life of another person, a baby like a newborn believer, grows. Let's stand to our feet as Sherry comes to lead us. Jesus said, you must be born again. And he says that to us here today. You must be. Not I suggest it. Not here's a, here's a philosophical thought, a philosophical anger, angle. You must be made new. You must be made new. Sherry, lead us as we close in worship this morning.
aqui 